0: Welcome to 2021, everybody in CBC. I am glad to be here, whether you're in the room or you're watching online. It's been a good couple weeks. It's been a really good holiday season. We had an outdoor Christmas Eve service. It was 42 degrees and beautiful all at the same time today. We're kicking off 2021, and we're going to be in that parable, a pretty well-known parable. And what I I want to do today is look at it in a way that might challenge how we've looked at this parable before. But before we get into it, we're going to do what we do at CBC. We show up here with some purposes. And, and, And one of those is to believe that God has something to say to us. We show up here knowing full well that God interacts with us and speaks to us through the Holy Spirit. And what that causes us to do is check our criticalness at the door because we want to be contributors to the conversation of faith, not critics of it in a far too critical culture. So this morning, we're just going to set our hearts right. and We're going to show up. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us today. And I'm going to ask that you pray for me as I teach the word of the Lord. So let's spend some time praying together before we open the word together. Come on. got i thankful to be back here. I'm thankful that just the truth that you're still good, that you're not going anywhere, and that we have hope for tomorrow because we've seen you work in the past. I pray today is a good day that we hear from God, that we open his word, and that we're reminded of his character and his purposes for his church. If you're comfortable, let us just take a couple seconds and say a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit might work in your spirit to lead you into an understanding of God today that you might see a clearer picture of his goodness. And ask that you pray for me, that God might use preparation to help us see more of who he is, um, and that might be clear. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. All right, there you go. So 2021, if anything, the last year has reminded me the purpose behind things. One of the things that got left behind for me in 2020 is just, I love gathering people together. I love hosting people. I love cooking for people. I love cooking for a lot of people. And you know what got shot down in 2020? My ability to gather 30 of my closest friends over and make food that hopefully was really, really good. But here's what that did along the way is it reminded me in the moment now why I used to do those things. My wife and I, when we would have people over, would have conversations beforehand because cause she would sit me down and say, Charlie, you're not going to get angry today. And, and not like a Hulk angry. I would cook food for people. And so often it didn't come out like I expected it to. And so in that moment, I'm actually very, very angry and not talking to anybody or hanging out with any of the friends I invited over because I overcooked the carrots, everybody. I don't know <laughs> if you get that way. And, and literally I can go back to, we used to take, used to take, Men's CBC ski trips. They're going to come back next year, I promise. And I used to cook for them so they'd let me go as a snowboarder because skiers need some humility. But that's a whole nother sermon. And I remember a couple years ago, I, I cooked for them. I did not like how it turned out. So I sat there in the corner at the men's CBC ski trip. And I didn't talk to anybody. And I didn't eat a thing. And somebody looked at me and said, are you going to eat? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> they said, it's really not that bad. And I said, that's what everybody wants to hear when they cook. So I, I sat there and, and I remember thinking to myself, I think, I think in this moment I've forgotten the purpose of this meal. The purpose of the meal in the middle of a ski trip with close friends surrounded by mountains wasn't to be the best dining experience ever. It was to refuel us so that we could go fall down the mountain some more tomorrow. Here's my point. When you miss or you forget the purpose of moments, you oftentimes miss those points in what God is doing along the way. I forgot in 2020 that while well, I was reminded in 2020 that the reason people came over was so that we could hang out, right? And food was a way to do that. Now, come over, I'll give you a bowl of Cheerios, we'll have a good time. I am so ready to have people over again. But we have to remember that so often, if we forget the purpose of why we're gathering together, if we forget the purpose of what we're doing, we miss the points God's trying to make along the way, you know? One of my favorite examples of this, we just get out of it, is the Christmas season, there's all these gifts, and there's all this generosity, and as a kid, you sit there and you want the biggest stack of gifts, but if you miss the purpose behind the gifts in the first place, if you forget that, then so often, you have a different experience on Christmas morning. My, my brother and I, am twins, and we were born on Christmas, and I struggled with this all of my life, you know, when people would come to me, and they'd say, Charlie, here is your Christmas gift, and it's your birthday gift, and it's for you and your twin brother, and I'd say, thanks for your <laughs> generosity in the season of hope. And I'd look at my little brother's pile that's bigger than mine, and I'd get kind of bitter because I missed the purpose. I forgot the purpose of why we gifts in the first place. And so in that moment, I just simply forgot what was good. We do all the time. Marriage is, I think, one of the best examples. Uh, You know, we we have sold this bill of goods that marriage is there to make your life better and more fulfilled and happier. I love what um, one author, Gary Thomas, who has a book on marriage I love, he says this about marriage. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? He talks about purpose. So in those moments when I'm unloading the dishwasher for my wife, (laughs) I'm not bitter in that moment because the point of that moment points me to the purpose of marriage in the first place, which is God growing me. We cannot forget purpose. This year has been a year where the church has been challenged to remember its purpose because we got things taken away we never thought would be taken away. And what we really had to do was buckle down and say, what's the purpose of why we gather together? Is it more people? Is it better sermons? Is it better music? Is it more views? What's the purpose of the church in general? What's the purpose of God's kingdom in this world in the first place? I have a missionary friend, and every week he has to report some numbers to his team and he reports numbers in terms of salvations and rededications, shocking their Baptist. And he, um, one week, actually reported some numbers, and he had more salvations and rededications combined than kids at the camp. And I thought to myself, somebody messed up on the math, or a kid got saved, backslid, and got rededicated all in the same week. God is good, right? <laughs> What's the purpose of why we gather together as the people of God? That's what we find in Matthew 13. So just some context around where we're at in the scriptures. Jesus started to teach, and he'd been teaching for about two years at this point. And it says right at the beginning of our text in verse 1, it says, On that day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. you got to understand That Jesus is here, and he normally taught at synagogues. And this is kind of a crucial moment, because a couple chapters before this, he, he built up his people, and then he sent them out. And really, the middle of Matthew talks about the response of people all over the countryside to the message of Jesus, how people respond to what he's been saying. And at this point, you couldn't ignore it anymore. And so there was a swelling kind of resolution towards how we're going to deal with the message of Jesus. And so this whole section is about what's the values of the kingdom. And he talks about it in parables. He says, this is what my kingdom's like. And he moves from the synagogue to the sea because as he's become more and more public, the synagogue is kicking him out uh, further and further. And and the Pharisees didn't like him because he's challenging their, their structure and their power and what they thought was the way that God should work. And so he goes out to the sea he begins this parable about what his kingdom's going to look like. He's trying to remind people of the purposes of God, why he's there in the first place. And it begins by saying, he told him a parable saying, listen, a sower went out to sow. This parable's in two different sections, by the way. It stops in verse 9, and then it picks back up in verse 18. And I'm going to read from that quite a bit when Jesus interprets his own parable so he starts by saying there's a sower. He says, listen, a sower went out to sow. It's a direct imperative. It doesn't mean maybe pay attention. It means listen, listen right now. He starts in verse 18 when he interprets it and said, so listen to the parable of the sower. And Jesus taught in parables for a couple of reasons. One is because it was a common way they taught in that day. It kept interest And in Jesus, I'm guessing, was a pretty dynamic speaker. Because if you're God and you speak the world into existence, I bet you can tell a story pretty well, right? Two is... He taught parables because if you're going to understand the parable you have to do some work. And I think this is a key context for why Jesus is teaching in parable. It's a key context to what Jesus says at the beginning when he says listen to the parable. What he implies there is there's a difference than just hearing and listening and that's a a theme we see throughout the old and new testament. That God wants more than just passive people, he wants active participants. And so he says in this text, even at the end of the parable, let those who have ears, let them hear or let them listen. He breaks it down and says, look, there's a difference between just sitting there and listening. And the difference between hearing and listening so often is understanding. What is passive, what is active. It's one of the first things he says about his kingdom. One of the first things is that he wants a people that are active in trying to understand and live out the ways and rhythms of him. I am not a great listener i'm trying to get better and and one way you know that i'm going to i'm going to spill something here and and look you're going to come up to me afterwards and ask me your name if you're new and i'm going to try and remember but i'm a name forgetter i just am i don't know if you're like that like you tell me your name and the next thing i think about is what kind of impressive thing can I say next to get you to like me? I'm a woo personality guy, right? It's the difference between I'm listening to understand you and I'm listening to wait for my next place to speak. I'm a preacher. This is what I do for a living. And so he's saying here in this moment that you have to do more than just hear. You have to hear with an idea of understanding. So he says, listen and understand what might happen. And what that does is it gives us a picture into the kind of people God's calling into his kingdom. Because I think that sometimes we we sit there and we think that Jesus is talking to a bunch of people and they're listening and he's speaking and one's active and the people are passive. But in this parable, he begins by saying, no, 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 the people that I'm speaking to, my people that understand my parables, they're listening with intent and action. And it reveals this deeper truth throughout the gospels that God is co-laboring with us in his kingdom. So first and foremost, we have to understand that the purpose of the kingdom of God is to work with the king to create more places that look more like Jesus in our world. It's what he did from the very beginning. That's why in Genesis 1, he says, I'm going to make man in my image and we are going to rule together. I'm going to give it to you that you might rule in a way that shows my goodness and my love and my compassion and my beauty for the rest of creation. And so when Jesus came back, he said, this is my kingdom. I'm inviting you into it. And it's beautiful. I like to cook. Let's keep on that theme for right now. I have a two and a half year old. Have you ever cooked with a two and a half year old? It's not as fun as cooking by yourself. But let me tell you something, my wife a couple days ago got up and made waffles with my kid and she made waffles and she had two different kinds of compotes because we're fancy. And, And she did all this with the two and a half year old. I sat in the other room and listened to what I thought was a battle, a war that my wife was losing, but she was really winning. And the point is simply the analogy sticks in the way that says that when God creates, he creates. When he lives out his kingdom, he invites us to participate in it, not just to be passive, but to be active. And there's a beauty in that when you see the waffles turn out good and you hurt. Her making it with a two and a half year old. She's a better baker than me and she has more patience than me because I would have given up a while before she did, you know? So when God asks us to participate in his kingdom, I love what C.S. Lewis said about it. He says he commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye because it shows value, because it shows care, and because it reveals his might and majesties in ways that we wouldn't see if he didn't include us in the first place. I think prayer is a beautiful example of this, co-laboring together. God says when we pray that, that he listens, and the prayer of a righteous person affects change. Think about that. The kingdom of God is not something that God is doing without us. It's something he is very much doing with us. It's this whole idea that the gospel is done for you and to you, but God's kingdom is built with you. So when we listen to this parable and he's saying, let me tell you, let me tell you what my kingdom is like, he's saying my kingdom, first and foremost, includes you, people. So he goes on to say, listen to this together, don't just hear, be active participants in the kingdom. He said, when he sowed some seeds, some seeds fell along the path and the birds devoured them. He interprets it in the latter part of our text and he said, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one comes and snatches what was sown in his heart, the seed sown along the path. You got to understand how they planted things in the first century world. This isn't Iowa. It's not Field of Dreams. There's not combines and clearly marked places to sow seed. They would walk and they would just throw it out there with their hands. And some would land on paths that people walked on, and some would land on fertile soil. And he kind of just said, I hope the ones that stick do stick. But a common reality was simply that some didn't stick together, that some people heard about the ways and rhythms of Jesus and said, you know what? That is just not for me. I guess here's one thing I know about Jesus is he came and he makes some pretty exclusive claims about who he is. He puts people to a decision point. And that might take time, that might take years, that might take a decade, that might take days. But he does say that you're going to choose what you think about me. Either I'm going to rule and reign or I'm not. A great example of this text, when people hear and they don't understand, when people hear and they don't fully comprehend and let it influence who they are, is the rich young ruler. It's a story about a young man that was had a lot of money and he... He, he came up to Jesus and he says, man, I've done all these things. Tell me what I can do to earn your approval or, you know, eternal significance or heaven, essentially. And Jesus says, sell everything you have. And in that moment, he realized that he couldn't do that because there's other things he valued over Jesus. And he said, I can't, I'm going to choose this. That to me is not the most beautiful thing. What's most beautiful is my stuff. And he walks away. The idea that he understood the concept of giving all this stuff away, but when put into reality, it didn't make sense enough to influence action, that's what an understanding of the gospel is. It's not just like an answer the Jesus shepherded questions, it's I've understood it to a point where it's impacting who I'm becoming. In the Hebrew concept of the word understanding, you couldn't say you understood something until it changed who you were. And there are people, there are people that are going to hear about Jesus and simply say that is not the kind of life I want to live. That's hard. So he said, there there are some people that are going to hear my claims, and they're not going to understand it. It's not going to add up. One plus one isn't going to be two for them, and they're going to say, this is not the way I want to live. All these things that Jesus says I am, this is not for me. He said, there's other kinds of soil. He said, there's seed that came up um, on rocky ground, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was not deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched because they didn't have a root, and they withered. Jesus interprets this by saying, the seed sown on the rocky ground is the person who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself and does not endure. When the trouble of persecution comes because of the word, immediately falls away. These are like the camp high experiences. These are the, I know God and I love God, but there's no depth there. So what he's pointing to here is the value of depth in the kingdom of God. There's things we have to talk about. It's kind of what he's getting to in this parable. It's the breakdown between sanctification and justification. Justification is what God does for you through the work of Jesus to make you right in the eyes of God. Sanctification is the deepening of that relationship so that his influence over time weighs out on our lives and actions. What this person is saying, what God is saying with this root is that he found Jesus to be beautiful, but he did nothing with that beauty. And so over time, when something happened, it wasn't sustained. When it says in the scripture, when the sun came out, it didn't mean the next morning. What it means there is a really, really hot day. It means trouble. It means calamity. It means 2020, everybody, you know? One of the things that died in 2020, along with my brunches, were um, the idea of, of casual friends. I was reading an article in the BBC and they, they talked about how your casual acquaintances have died under the pandemic because you're not going to work anymore and because you're not seeing these people and because you're walking in your neighborhood but you're not talking to the people that you normally talk to or it's like my neighborhood where people stop walking all together. He makes a case that says true and lasting relationships cannot be maintained if there's no death. And here's one thing I know from experience. Death can't be faked, it only comes over time. It's inattention. It only does. It's why if you pick up and move to a new city, it takes time to find a community like the one you had before. There's no way to replicate that in a week or two weeks. It takes time and intentionality. So what he says is there are people that will hear this and they will do nothing with it. And over time, they won't develop the depth that comes from intentionality. And when they have a hard time in life, they'll ask questions like, where is God right now? He's not here for me, so I won't be here for him. Because what it means in this text is not like slowly over time they lose their faith. It means that their faith collapses because of a moment. And we know those people. I know those people. I know those people that feel like God has abandoned them. It breaks my heart. And this is why he says, pursue in other parts of scripture depth with people know and grow in your understanding of Christ. Paul talks about milk and solid food. Get to the solid food because here's the point in this second one. It doesn't say if you encounter, it says when, 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 when you encounter struggles, it's going to happen. He says he wants the kingdom of God to be sustained in the people of God. And some people won't have it sustained because they don't have depth. And then he gets to the third candidate, This is the candidate that slowly over time lost their passion for Jesus. Other seeds fell among the thorns and they grew up and they choked them. Jesus says it like this. The seed sown among the thorns is the person who hears the word, but the worldly cares and seductiveness of wealth choke the word so it produces nothing. We have a theme here that he's building towards, that the goal of the kingdom of God is producing fruit, producing something. And here's the sadness of this one example is they tried and it planted and it kind of grew, but over time things took up more value than the things of the kingdom. He uses two phrases here to break it down. He says worldly cares and the seductiveness of wealth. Man, I think those are so incredibly applicable to you and me. When he talks about worldly cares, he literally means the anxiety of today. He means the idea that I don't know what tomorrow brings, and I'm terrified because I can't stop fill-in-the-blank from happening. I go back to uh, a a book. It's called Wednesdays Were Pretty Normal, uh, Boy, Cancer, and God. My guy named Michael Kelly, and his son was battling with leukemia. And I love what he says about anxiety and trust. He says, when we live with a lack of anxiety about the future even in those tightrope kind of times, we communicate the truth that our God is indeed worthy of trust. We don't fret over the future because he holds it in his hands. We don't wring out our hands and worry because we know he's charting the course. That sort of confidence invites others into it. He says, don't get choked out by the anxiety of tomorrow because really what you're doing there is not trusting me with it. But he tags on to that, the anxiety of tomorrow and worldly possessions or material goods or essentially just wealth, which is, which is what is valued in our world, has been valued in our world for a very, very long time. And you can make a really strong case that if the U.S. of A. had a thing that pulled them away from the value of God as our best good, it's the stuff that we can buy with the stuff that we've made ourselves. There's a quote I love from a guy named Victor Lebo. He's an economist, and he's a retail analyst, and he said this. He says, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, and that we seek our spiritual satisfactions and our ego satisfactions in consumptions. You know what he wrote that? 1955, right? I think that plays so true today. You know, the average American household has 300,000 items in it, 300,000 items in it, individual items. I I think you could hear that and not believe it, but start counting. We'll be back here next month, and you can tell me what number you got to. The idea that I read this week, that that actually houses today are three times as big as they were 50 years ago, and we have two times as many material goods as we did. This is my favorite. The average house that has two-car garages... Only 25% of people with two-car garages don't have room to park either car inside of it. 32% of people that have two-car garages can only fit one, because 300,000 things needs a place to go, everybody, you know? It's this idea that over time, we've developed this need to buy stuff. And here's why I think he groups these two together, because ultimately, it comes back to the problem we've had since the beginning, we want to know that we can provide for ourselves, and we want to know that we can uh, provide stuff for ourselves and provide shelter for ourselves. We want to trust in ourselves for provision and for need. It comes down to the fact that I think we fundamentally have a problem understanding that we are not our own God. And if we can provide all the stuff we need and all the shelter we need, we can convince ourselves that we are all we need. It's why he uses that other parable of a camel in the eye of a needle when it comes to wealthy people. He says, hey, it's harder for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person to find the kingdom. He doesn't mean it's impossible. He simply says, it's really difficult to admit that you need God when you have all you want provided by you. You become your own. And so he says there's going to be soil where over time you start to believe this, this slow, creeping, but pervasive lie that we're all we need for shelter and for goodness and for sustenance. Then he finishes with the good soil. So there's a a seed sown on good soil. It's the person who hears the word and understands it. He bears fruit, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some 100 times as much, some 60 and some 30. And now we get back to where we began. We get to the purpose of this parable in the first place. Because what he's doing is he's saying, here's the good of the kingdom. The good of the kingdom is that the people that are in the kingdom produce fruit. So often I've heard this parable taught. and It's always been about something else because our purpose defines if we see the point. If we miss the purpose, then the point doesn't reflect back to the intended design in the first place. So many times I've heard this taught and it's always been about what soil are you? Are you going to go to heaven or not? Have you guys heard that one before? (laughs) Are you the soil that doesn't like God in the first place or in the end doesn't like God and gets choked out? Either way, you're probably not going to go to heaven. Stand up, get rededicated so I can count you in my numbers, right? I've heard this so many times taught before from the perspective of we are the sower. We go out and throw as much seed as we can because you don't know what's going to stick. So use every moment that you can to tell people about the goodness of God. Those both are fine, but I I think it misses the purpose of the parable. And so the point of the parable then doesn't go back to the purpose in the first place. What I think he's saying here is that the kingdom of God calls us to a life of perseverance so that we can produce fruit. Don't forget that the kingdom of God calls us beyond just a profession of faith into a ritual, a lifestyle, a way that reflects Jesus. It's bigger and richer and deeper than a single moment. It's a single lifestyle that carries on starting now into all eternity. Jesus called people into a way, not a moment. And so if you interpret this passage, if you see the purpose of the kingdom as perseverance over time that yields fruit so that people might see the beauty of Jesus, then the point of this parable is not to ask what soil are you, it's to ask this one simple question, how is your soil? Are you cultivating the ground of your heart and soul in a way that allows the fruit of Christ to grow? He asks this question and says, this is what my kingdom is. It is people that follow me over time that produce fruit so that people might see the influence of the kingdom. And so he's teaching this to people, not asking the question, are you in? Are you out? He's not asking the question, are you good? Are you bad? He's asking the question, how's the soil of your heart? Because the purpose of the kingdom is that people might see the fruit of the goodness of God. Saying, how's your soil? And so we Kick off 2021, and we're going to do spiritual disciplines for the next three weeks. And basically, this was an intro into spiritual discipline. And you're saying, you're at 27 minutes right now. If this is the intro, I'm not coming back next week. I get it. Um, But I will say this. As we start a new year, as we ask questions about what's good in our life, as we refine purpose and what we deem valuable in our world, whether it's cooking or whether it's our marriage or fill-in-the-blank here, we have to ask the question, how is the soil of our soul as we see God creating fruit all around us? And really, when we talk about it, that's what spiritual disciplines do. One pastor that I follow says this, his spiritual disciplines are conduits for grace to flow into our lives. And What, what they do is they allow us spaces and places to see growth. They allow us spaces and places to check in with God and say, hey, I want to cultivate my life so that it might be ready for God to work and to move. So, in the last few years, we've talked about prayer, and last year, we talked about Sabbath. This week, we're going to talk about this, this, this January, we're going to talk about silence and solitude. And everybody's like, I've had enough 2020, but I think it's needed in our culture. And we're gonna ask that you engage with us in it and it's kind of up to you how much you want to engage in it with us but the point and purpose of today is to remember the point and purpose of the parable to remind ourselves of the point and purpose of the kingdom which is to create people that produce fruit so that people might see Jesus. That's why he came and said, I'm calling you to create disciples, not converts. We need converts. (laughs) He says, the beauty of the kingdom is lives changed, influence over time so that people might see the overwhelming goodness of God. So the question today is simply, how's your soil? We want to be a people. We want to be a church that cultivates our lives in such a way where we can be conducive to God planting and growing. We can see the fruit of God all around us, and we can celebrate his goodness as people see his beauty. So I guess this week... Application is pretty thin, but welcome to Sermons at Crossroads. I'm working on it. Um, this week is simply just asking, man, how is our soul and what are we doing to work and wait for God to show up so that we might be active participants in the kingdom, co-laboring with Jesus and not passive people waiting for God to show up because he's here and he's working. And as we talk about different ways that we see God in our world, we begin to see the fruit We begin to be just blown away by his goodness. And we begin to see a God that's already here, that's shown up, and that is changing us for the better. We see the beauty of the kingdom. Let me pray.